1965, the United States passed the Hart-Celler Act, which reversed course on decades of discriminatory immigration policy. Since the 1920s, the country's immigration laws had been designed to encourage immigration from Western and Northern Europe, which were predominantly white countries, and to suppress immigration from Asia, Eastern Europe, and everywhere else. But starting in 1965, the United States prioritized skilled and specialized immigrants from around the world. Thousands of doctors and nurses and engineers and other skilled workers moved to the U.S. from places like Philippines, China, and India, and other nations that had previously been blocked from substantial immigration. And many of these immigrants moved to places where other, whiter, wealthier Americans wouldn't. These were the doctors who moved to rural, mountain, and urban communities to fill a growing need in our healthcare system. Nima Avasha's father was one of those doctors. He grew up in India before immigrating to New York and being recruited to be a company doctor for a Union Carbide chemical plant in West Virginia. He dedicated himself to his new home and his community, helping neighbors with their health needs, even outside of the responsibilities of his job. His daughter Nima was raised in the suburban bedroom community of Cross Lanes, West Virginia. She's an Appalachian through and through. She can sing Take Me Home Country Roads by heart. She knows the state's mountains and waterways like the back of her hand. And in her new collection of essays, Another Appalachia, Coming Up Queer in India in a Mountain Place, she describes how at times she felt more hillbilly than a Hindu. In this book, she wrestles with big questions about identity. Could she really call herself an Appalachian if her family didn't go back several generations like her neighbors? What are the ways in which ethics of community and kinship interact with an ethics of survival and assimilation? What does it mean to come up in a business environment like a chemicals or coal company that extracts so much from its places and its people? And what does it mean to see the people you love posting vile, hateful things about immigrants and people of color on Facebook? Nima now lives in Boston as a teacher and an advocate for her students and her school. And she points to her Appalachian upbringing as being something that instilled that work ethic and sense of responsibility in her. Today on The Reckon Interview, we discuss her Appalachian upbringing and how it feels to love and support a place from afar, even on days when it feels like it doesn't give you the love you deserve in return. So let's go ahead and get started on this week's episode of The Reckon Interview. Okay, Nima Vasha, welcome to The Reckon Interview. Thanks for having me. So we are here to talk about your book, Another Appalachia. So tell me about Another Appalachia. Tell me about the community that you grew up in. You bet. So I grew up in southern West Virginia in a small town called Cross Lanes. It's an unincorporated community population. When I lived there was around 10,000. It's decreased since then. And my parents moved to the area because my dad got hired to work as a physician at Union Carbide, which was one of several chemical plants in the Kanawha Valley at that time. Along the Kanawha River, a bunch of plants popped up kind of post-World War II, a lot around munitions and then moving forward from munitions into um, chemical production. And so my dad was a plant doctor. He had a choice between Institute West Virginia and Sea Drift, Texas. And West Virginia was closer. So that's where they moved. And then that's where I grew up. I mean, that's where I became an adult was in Cross Lanes, West Virginia. And that community has changed a lot since then. A lot of us think about how the coal industry is disappearing in Appalachia, but the chemical industry has transformed rapidly too. Yeah. And they're connected, right? I mean, that's, I think, a thing maybe people outside the region don't know, but coal is how a lot of those chemical plants were fired. So the the railroad tracks that were ran behind my school growing up ran coal one way and ran chemicals the other way. But there's definitely a was like a mutual dependence between those two industries. I don't think it's unrelated. The decline in coal and the decline in chemicals, I think in some ways are connected to each other and just also connected to sort of broader policy moves and decisions that really shifted chemical production and coal purchase to other countries. And so 
you know, when I was growing up in the Chemical Valley in the 80s, like there was a level of economic health that didn't necessarily extend to all parts of West Virginia at all. But the Charleston area was relatively healthy. There were middle-class jobs that you could get with a high school diploma that were union jobs that came with a pension. And so there really was a path to upward mobility for a lot of people. I think I like to think about it a little bit as that like the children of coal miners had a path out of the mines in some ways, right? And it was a path that was safer and more secure in some ways. And so there was sort of a general sense of health in the early 80s. That then as you got later into the 80s and into the 90s, you started to see this pretty intense decline begin. And I think we are now experiencing kind of all the intensity of the decline in this moment. Well, it's interesting that one of the things that I, I find so compelling about your book is that obviously in the last few years, in response to a certain book, there have been a lot of stories written about Appalachian decline and kind of the drivers behind that. And you approach it with a lot of empathy. I mean, you know, you talk about some of the white people in your life growing up that have reason to look fondly back on the 70s, 80s, and 90s because of that upward mobility and things that you were talking about. And you open with an essay where you are returning to the community that you grew up in. And and I believe you said it's now called Needle City. And, you know, because of drug use there and most of the towns and the bedroom community that you grew up in seem to have fallen into disrepair. And yet you don't necessarily reach the same conclusions that that other book, you know, Hillbilly Elegy reached. So tell me about you know, why you come at it from a certain perspective versus maybe why J.D. Vance came at it from his perspective, other than you're not a politician. (laughs) I was going to say, other than that, I'm not trying to get elected. And so therefore uh, invested in like one particular narrative about what happened. So, I mean, I think that and I say this as a child of the chemical industry, which is like a weird thing. Right. I think a lot of us who grew up in that area have very complicated feelings about What does it mean that the industry that put food on your table was also poisoning the air? And also, I think we all know what it looked like when that industry left. And so for us, it's pretty clear that this isn't about individual people not wanting to work or somehow being defective in the way that that other book likes to make people seem, but really about how corporations and government abandon a place. And what does it look like when when policy decisions are made that render harm on a community, but there's no accountability for that harm, right? And I think you can look at that with the chemical industry. I think you can look at it with coal. I also think you can look at it at big pharma. There are clear choices that were made by those industries, take everything they could from Appalachia in terms of resources, in terms of human labor, in terms of money, and then to bounce. I have a hard time putting that on any one Appalachian person and saying, well, this is your responsibility or it's your fault this happened. I understand it as this is capitalism. You take everything you can from a place and then you leave. That's that's capitalism writ large. When there's no more of the thing to take, you go and you go to a place where you can take it again. Right. Or when people start to push back too hard and want too much and they're asking for too much and they're asking for regulation, they're asking for you to be accountable for when you pollute the water and the air. They're asking you for protection for workers. You leave. Those asks aren't unreasonable, but industries don't want to do them and government doesn't want to make them do them. What types of products were being manufactured at a plant like Union Carbide in West Virginia and elsewhere in the Chemical Valley? Pesticides. A lot of pesticides. That was one of the biggest things. Also, I mean, DuPont was there. So a lot of like cleaning, tough stuff, cleaning supplies, but the largest carbide in particular, the largest 
production was of pesticides. So products that were driving a lot of middle-class growth elsewhere in the country, but also, you know, were having environmental effects, you know, in the Gulf Coast, for example, having orders of magnitude of environmental devastation beyond just you know, poisoning the air there in, in West Virginia as well. For sure. Union Carbide has a plant right outside of Norland. Sorry, had. Yeah, no, it's not. It is not just an Appalachian thing. You can kind of track it, right? And you can look and yeah, it's the same thing in the Gulf Coast. It's, I think that feeling of that really complicated relationship, I think it's resonant for people in a lot of parts of the country that aren't cities. I think in a lot of rural America, the way in which there's a really complex relationship between industry and the people who live in the place. It's very resonant, I think, for lots of people when you know both that you need this thing to survive and that this thing is actually not good for anybody. I was also interested in kind of the interpersonal relationship between you and your father, because he was a company man kind of through and through. Tell me about your parents. You know, it it takes a lot of courage, I think, to immigrate from India to a community. I know they stopped in New York first, but then to a community like West Virginia. So tell me about who your parents were and, and what drove your father. Yeah. I mean, I have, I think the older I get, the more respect and appreciation I have for how difficult my parents' journey had to have been. Um, I think things that I didn't understand as a kid, and even things that I didn't really fully understand until I was writing this book, in terms of the sacrifices that they made and the kinds of choices that they were presented with and what they had to do with those choices. And I think this is not unusual when you're the child of immigrants. I think it's the story of a lot of immigrant families that our parents did not have a safety net. And when you don't have a safety net, the thing driving every decision you make is your family security that you never can see much further than that, because if that's insecure, then nothing else matters. And so I think for my parents, a lot of the choices they made in terms of how they interacted with the chemical industry, and even how they interacted with our neighbors in our Appalachian community was ultimately about survival. It was about making sure that we were taken care of, that we had a safety net under us. They were our safety net and they didn't have a safety net. And I think then when you're the child of immigrants, it can be easy to look at their choices and be like, wow, I can't believe you made those choices. And yet, I have a safety net, the one they made, right? And so I can make different choices because of what they didn't do. I think about that a lot with my parents. I think about just the stakes of being just a small handful of people of color in all white environments that were not easy. I recently ran into a woman here in Boston whose grandfather worked at the same plant as my dad. And I was like, oh, I'm sure they knew each other. And she was like, I hope they didn't because my grandpa was pretty racist. And I was in my head, I was like, I'm sure they work together. And I'm sure, you know, I'm sure my dad experienced that. And I'm sure he swallowed a lot for us. And you talk about the ethics of community versus the ethics of assimilation or the ethics of survival. And I thought that was a really interesting point you made in this essay about your father and his relationship with the chemical industry. He was somebody who was the town doctor. In addition to being the company doctor, he did a lot of pro bono work for the community there. And in return, it sounds like at least some members of the community, maybe not this woman's grandfather, you know, responded in kind by being willing to show up and fix broken things around y'all's house or meals. Uh, You talked specifically about a couple that you call Mr. and Mrs. B. So tell me about, you know, y'all's relationship in that community, but then also how you came to view your father's role later on in life in that ethics of community versus survival. 
Yeah, you know, I didn't have language for this until I encountered Anne Pancake, who's an amazing Appalachian writer from West Virginia, and she uses this language of the kinship economy. And in her view, like in places like Appalachia, kinship economy is really what drives a lot of relationships, which is that there's nobody coming to save us. There's no outside resource that's going to solve our problems. So the way we relate to each other and orient towards each other is what do I have that I can give you? And what do you need, right? Well, like, how do we match our skills and needs with one another? Because ultimately, that's our way through. And I think my parents picked up on that very quickly. I think they very, very quickly understood that this was the way you related to people. It's through what you had to offer, and then they were going to give you what they had to offer in turn. And that's the context I was raised in. And I think it was really incredible. I think it really shaped a lot of how I think about being in community now, even though I live in a place where that's not how people orient at all. I wish it was, but it's not. I still orient that way. Like I still am always thinking about what gap can I fill for you? What do I have that I can offer you? And so I think I just saw that happening all the time, all around me in so many different ways, big and small. You know, like I think about, I had a neighbor who heard about a driving lesson that I had with my dad that did not go well and was like, I've got it. Like, you don't need to do this, doc. I'm going to take it and taught me how to drive. Rick Withrow taught me how to drive. And he came every weekend. I mean, this wasn't like a one-time thing. This was, I'm going to make time out of my schedule. He worked at a chemical plant too. He did shift work. It's not like he had a ton of time on his plate. He had three kids, but he saw a need and he was like, I can sell this. I can take this off your plate. There's something really beautiful about that. And I don't necessarily feel like every Indian person in our small Indian community understood it the way my parents did. I really do think more than a lot of the other Indian people in our community, I think my parents really found a home in that kinship economy and found that like that really aligned with their values and their way of being. And I think as I've gotten older, I've been able to see that my dad was both really trying to inhabit those values and also really grappling with what does it mean to work for this employer? And how do I hold these two things that sometimes kind of fly in the face of each other? When the Babal incident happened, the other chemical plant that was making the same chemical that was being produced in Bhopal that resulted in so much death and so much damage was the Institute plant, which was where my dad worked. So methyl isocyanate was only being made in two places, Bhopal, India and Institute, West Virginia. And without question, a lot of people in our community were pretty freaked out. Like, well, And just so our listeners understand you know, because I had not heard of this incident prior to reading your book, but this was the largest leak in global history of a chemicals plant in India. And despite the fact that your father was a company doctor in the United States plant, the company sent him to India basically to serve as kind of a token face, uh, as an Indian face in the company's response, because this was, I believe, an American-based company. Is that right? A hundred percent. It's an American-based company. The leadership of that company was entirely white. You know, my dad was a plant doctor, but he wasn't upper level management that would like get sent to an international disaster, I think. But for the fact that one, he worked at another plant that had that chemical. So he had some understanding of the treatment response. And two, I think he was Indian. And I think they were hoping that having an Indian person on their team would in some way mitigate the rage that was going to get directed at them when they went to India to try to respond to this terrible, terrible disaster. And I think when my dad came home, people in the community where we lived were also really scared and really angry. What does it mean that this chemical is being produced 
that has caused so much harm somewhere else? Could it cause the same harm here? And it becomes very hard to figure out how do you hold these things that your work is making people feel unstable and unsafe. And you're also trying really hard to be a contributing and caring member of a community. I have a much greater appreciation for how difficult it must have been for him to hold all of that together. And there really wasn't like, I think uh, for, for, for Indian folks who came to the United States in the seventies, like your job options were pretty limited. Um, you were going where American people didn't want to go. So I don't think my dad felt like, oh, I can just leave this place and go somewhere else. I don't think that ever felt like an option for him. I think he felt like he really had to make it work there, even as it sometimes was really hard to. And your family came to America in a time shortly after restrictions had been lifted against immigration from countries like India. Please share with us, but it didn't, it doesn't seem like the anti-immigrant fervor was as heated as it is now in the seventies and eighties in places like West Virginia. And it's just kind of ironic, like you said, that, you know, most affluent or middle-class white American doctors or, you know, engineers would not choose to go to the rural and mountain places that Indian immigrants and other immigrants from around the world were going. And yet there's that tension between anti-immigrant fervor now and who is able to go to those jobs. I think a lot of people have forgotten that history or don't learn that history in our schools because we don't teach history in our schools anymore because people want history to be illegal. But the Heart Seller Act that passed in 65, it specifically encouraged high-skilled immigration. So who was able to come easily were engineers and doctors and scientists from Asia in particular. That was a group of people that were being drawn from that place. But the caveat was, if you come here, you're going to work where we have need. And where we have need is either in like intensely urban areas or intensely rural ones, because those were the two places that affluent white people were not wanting to work. It was too hard. They felt like the work was too hard or the living conditions were not good enough or whatever it was. Um, so that definitely meant that like in, in communities like Charleston, West Virginia, if you went into a hospital, many of the physicians, many of the physicians were Indian or Chinese or Filipino. It wasn't like my parents were an exception. It actually was quite common and not just in West Virginia, but in many parts of the South, there are these pockets of Asian immigration that I think you can see in certain fields and in certain areas where it's like, oh yeah, there is like a significant... I'm thinking like in Mississippi, right? There are sort of these pockets of Asian immigration that exist because of the Heart Seller Act. That said, I think something I've realized as I've gotten older is our numbers were never that high. And so I think that what might have happened is that it was really easy for people to view us as an exception. And in fact, I've had people say that to me, like when I have tried to engage with people from home about their immigration views, and I've said to them, you know, you're talking about me, right? Or, you know, you're talking about my family. When you say these anti-immigrant things, you, you're talking about us. Their response is, oh, you're not that kind of immigrant. And that's very hard for me because I'm like, sure we are. <laughs> like, yes, we are exactly that kind of immigrant, whatever that kind of immigrant is, like we're them. But I think because the numbers were so small, like people could kind of engage in this exceptionalism to be like, oh, we have negative feelings about immigrants, capital I, but, but you're fine. Like you're okay. Right. We can, we can somehow separate you from this broader phenomenon. And that's a really painful thing I think to grapple with. I don't want to be an exception. Like I want you to see me and my story is connected to this very big and old story of immigration to this country in which 
effectively, this country doesn't really function without immigrant labor, you know, without immigrant labor. And before that, without the labor of enslaved people, a lot of people in this country, like, weren't trying to work without getting people to either work for free or work for less or work exploited. So, like, our labor has made this country in many ways. Um, and I don't, I don't see myself as separate from that story. And it's hard for me when that's how people have sort of, like, done some mental gymnastics to be able to care about me and care about my family is by saying, oh, well, you're an exception. Like, you're not like everybody else. It feels kind of conditional instead of being able to be like, no. Like, yes, your immigration story connects you to this bigger immigrant community and we love you, period. It's like, oh, we love you because we think you're not like them. Doesn't feel great. No, I I can't imagine that it would. And especially, and I mentioned it a few minutes ago, but this couple that you described, Mr. and Mrs. B, who uh, I guess were almost like a grandparent figures for you. She was one of the people who said, I didn't see color when I saw you. And, And he increasingly post hateful and vile things about immigrants on Facebook as so many people do these days. And yet, you know, you go out of your way to make space for empathy for them, you know, and sometimes hid parts of your personality and yourself, including your sexuality. And you point out that, you know, they never seemed willing to do that for you. You would make space for protecting their needs and and that yet they weren't willing to do that for you, even if they, you know, thought in their heart and, and think in their heart of hearts that, that they love you. I know she has passed. Has he read this book? Have you heard from him? <laughs> I haven't. And I don't know that he has. And if he has, I'm not sure he likes what he's read. And that's a hard thing. It's a hard thing. But I also think I feel like so many of us are struggling with those relationships right now where people who we have really deep love for have landed in a place that we really don't understand. And in some ways, I felt like I needed to tell that story because I think so many of us are privately grappling with that story and there's not enough public room to talk about it and to talk about what do we do when when some of the most important relationships in our lives are now sort of like being shaded by this intense political divide. I really do still hold a lot of empathy there and still think that I'm not confused about his anger. Like I'm not confused about why he feels the way he feels or why he's gone to the place he's gone because I understand it as grief. I understand it as like this place that I love, that I raised my family in, that I made my life in has completely combusted. And there's deep grief with that. And then when you're grieving, Like all of us want to understand the why that's every one of us. When we're in deep grief, we want to be able to make meaning or make sense of what's happened. And I feel like there's only one narrative being offered for what happened right now. And that narrative is one of xenophobia and exclusion. And I really struggle to see where other narratives are at the same volume as that intensely hateful narrative. And so I try to just think about it from that place of if I'm really in deep grief and you're giving me a narrative and I can't, there's not another one that I can find. And I gravitate towards that narrative. Like, I think I get it. I don't think it's good. And I don't think it's right. And I really wish we could turn up the volume on alternate narratives. And I think lots of people, including Reconcile, including Apod Lacha, I think that's what we're trying to do is to turn up that narrative. But I also think that is a narrative coming from like individuals and not necessarily a a narrative coming from a political party in the way that I really wish it were right now. 
Coming up after the break, more from Nima Avasha about growing up in another Appalachia. Hey guys, if you've been listening to this interview and you wanted to jump in with ideas of your own, then you may want to sign up for The Conversation, our weekly newsletter that dives into some of the topics that we raise on the show and other issues in the South. You can sign up for it at ReckonSouth.com slash newsletters. Well, especially when, you know, you look at your father and, and your family and, and other communities, uh, other people like them in your community, you know, holding a community like that together for, for decades, you know, around the chemical plant and, and, you know, the unpaid work and, and service that, that your family did, you know, to, to not then be able to leap and say, oh, no, immigrants were actually great for our community is, is very upsetting. Um, but, you know, you still look back on Appalachia fondly. That comes very clear throughout the book. So I don't want this interview to make it seem like this was some sort of polemic against West Virginia because you love West Virginia. And you'd write about how, you know, there are moments your hillbilly culture was more pronounced than maybe your Hindu culture. And so tell me about growing up Hindu in, in West Virginia and what that was like for you. Yes. I just want everyone to know that I wore Tudor's Biscuit World socks to school today. And I'm wearing a rainbow y'all t-shirt right now. So let's not be confused. Um, I have deep love for the place that I came from. And I'm very, very clear about how the person that I am today, I would not be without my West Virginia family and community. Like I, I can't really imagine who I'd be. So I think of this book in many ways as a love letter, but a love letter, like a real love letter, which is to say complicated and messy and hard at points and love, love makes you work, you know, it, love isn't easy. And so it's, it's a love letter in all those ways. It has the hard stuff in it, but it also has a lot of joy in it. But yeah, I mean, my family, my parents are Hindu. My mom was a lot more devout than my father, but you know, we moved to West Virginia and there's no Hindu temple. (laughs) There's no big community in which you're celebrating these rituals. They're not holidays off from school. Our first temple was in the basement of a person's house. I don't, they just were like, we're going to make a temple in our basement. And they did. And that was amazing. And then we would meet at like high school gyms or the junior women's club to do rituals together. It was very much like people trying to create community and create faith in spaces that weren't necessarily built for that. Um, And I think what that meant for me as a kid is that I grew to develop a really deep appreciation of the people and the community, but I didn't grow up to be particularly faithful uh, because it was really hard. It's hard to sort of like experience these sort of approximated rituals and all these things sort of happening decontextualized and having it be like only a thing you're doing on a weekend or once a month or whatever else. And to feel like really connected in the way that I think when you're in India, like there's a temple on every corner, you can't really you can't not be aware of faith for better or worse. It's all around you. In my day-to-day existence, Hinduism wasn't around me in that way. I mean, my mom had a little altar in our kitchen that she would pray at and I was raised vegetarian and I would read like these Hindu comic books to try to like understand the mythology, but it all sort of felt like it was happening kind of at the sidelines, right. As opposed to what was central in my life was Appalachia. Um, that's like, you know, I was spending my days at school. I played sports. I was in 4-H. I was in Girl Scouts. I went to the library. Like my immediate community that was around me 90% of the time was, was an Appalachian community. And so I think the cultural practices of that community really rooted themselves in me in a, in a very strong way. And are the thing that I think 
I feel like I live out the most in my day to day. Still vegetarian, but that's like the, the of my Hinduism. Like that's the main thing that's remained. Yeah. Whereas like I can name for you like 20 ways in which I feel like my Appalachian identity shows up all the time every day. Your mom was not interested in you adopting Christianity. <laughs> and yet, you know, you mentioned that you didn't grow up surrounded by faith, but I, I imagine you grew up surrounded by a very different faith and that there were multiple efforts throughout your life to try to convert you or to, to witness Christianity to you. I've heard from readers and from listeners in the past, you know, that we don't do enough talking about what it's like to be a religious minority in the South. And so describe kind of the day-to-day of, of just navigating a heavily Christian community like West Virginia. Like I've been saved, right? Like, which is weird to think about. Cause I think I was like six and I, my friend was like, come to Sunday school with me. And somehow I ended up at the front of the room at the altar and got saved. I, I kind of think about it as like, well, I guess I can check that off. Like, But it was very much like, I mean, it was pervasive. You know, my middle school basketball coach made us say the Lord's Prayer before basketball games. That wasn't legal. We weren't supposed to be doing that. Did I know? No, I didn't know it wasn't legal. And did I feel like I couldn't participate? No, it wasn't optional. Like, it was in the huddle, right? So what are you going to do? Be the one, you're already the brown kid, and now you're going to be the brown kid who's not going to go in the huddle? Like, that's a very hard choice to make. So I can recite the Lord's Prayer by heart, right? I mean, do I believe any of it? No. But do I know every word? Yes. There's just this way in which I think when you're the minority, like you become very aware of the majority, like, you know, all the rules and you know how they work and you know what's supposed to happen because you're kind of bombarded with it. And so you become very well versed in like what this world looks like, even though it's like, well, this isn't my world. But I think it can be really hard to figure out, well, what is the space for my world? What's the space for my beliefs? Like when there's such an inundation, I mean, it really was like, it would just happen all the time that I would think I was doing one thing and then suddenly religion would show up and I'd be like, oh, I didn't know this is what we were doing, right? A friend invites me to like, to watch the Super Bowl at our church and it's like halftime and halftime's the best part of the Super Bowl and we're supposed to be watching the ads, but you turn it off to pray and try to get people who aren't Christian to accept Jesus into their hearts. Like, how was I supposed to know? That's what was happening. I didn't know. I think it's pretty humorous. And I don't think that like my friends were doing anything out of malice, but I think it was just kind of assumed that this way was the right way. And if you weren't doing it, then like we were going to try to get you to do it that way. It was pretty constant. This sort of like, come do it our way, come do it our way, come do it our way. In a way that I think made it very hard to feel like no, I have this other way and I can really hold to it. Uh, Particularly because I think all religions have a lot of patriarchy baked into them, have a lot of misogyny baked into them. So like as you're grappling with those elements of your own faith that are kind of making you distance yourself from it to also be experiencing this sort of like push towards another faith, in some ways, I think it just made me not religious at all. I was like, I don't really like any of this. None of this feels like what I want in my life. Yeah, you talk about, I think you were working on your sister's vows, translating them to English. There's a segment in the wedding ceremony that you were like, oh, no, we're not doing this. <laughs> tell, tell us about that. 
It was a part of the ceremony, which in some ways is beautiful. It's like nine married women come up and whisper wishes in your ear. That sounds lovely. But then the thing that they're saying when you translate it effectively means like, may you die before your husband, which is a very old thing that comes from like when sati was a practice. And if a woman didn't die before her husband, she was going to be on the pyre with her husband. So it was women trying to like basically wish each other not that fate, right? I get the idea behind it. And I'm like, we don't need to say that anymore. Like, we can be done with that. We can just say nice things. Like we don't, we don't need to say that phrase. I think there were many times where I felt like, oh, why are we doing this? What does this mean? Like, what is this ritual? I do think like growing up in America, like there is kind of a criticality that happens of just like, I think we're taught to think in school. And I think we're taught, oh, I was, Again, I'm not sure that people want that to happen anymore, but I was taught to think and ask questions and be like, why are we doing these things? And so that questioning, I think, gets applied to everything. It gets applied to your faith, gets applied to cultural practices, gets applied to the place where you're living. Why do we do this here? And I think it makes you both willing to ask questions or make different choices, but also makes it hard to sort of commit fully to anything because you're just kind of like, I'm not sure about any of it. I have lots of questions about all of it. Growing up Appalachian and that being the only home that you've ever known for, you know, for the first 18 years of your life and then moving away for college. And I can't imagine that there are too many people of Indian descent in the world that kind of have to endure the hillbilly jokes at college that you, <laughs> that you had to go through. But then you've lived most of your life now outside of that place. And, you know, the, you raised this idea of Indolachian, but how that community was only kind of there temporarily and you know how do you hold on to that sense of identity and place when it's not an eighth generation thing so where have you come down on that now are you still working your way through it how do you how do you feel about your Appalachian identity I mean I think that in some ways writing this book has been like the most Appalachian I've felt in my whole life like I think when I was growing up I didn't really feel like I could use that word to describe myself because everyone I saw around me who did use it didn't look like me. And then I went to college and people were so terrible about Appalachia, which I will never, never understand how Pittsburghers went from hating on Appalachia to now being like, we're the only city in Appalachia. Someone needs to explain how that's happened in 20 years because I don't get it. But I, it wasn't like that when I went there. And sort of having my Appalachian-ness like become very visible and having it be like, oh, these people definitely see me as Appalachian, whether I do or not. Like, that's how I'm being seen, right? Um, I think in some ways it's like the further I've gone away, the sharper the contrast has become between like who I am and the places where I live. And the more clearly I've been able to see how so much of who I am was formed by the place where I grew up. And I think in writing this book, that sort of only became more apparent to me. And I think a really beautiful thing about this book process is the way in which it's connected me with people who are in Appalachia now, with other ex-Padalachians who aren't in Appalachia anymore, but kind of share similar feelings with young queer people in Appalachia who are just reaching out and talking about what the book means to them with older queer people who grew up in Appalachia but don't live there anymore and are like, I totally saw myself in these experiences. Um, there's a way in which the book has sort of like built this whole new Appalachia around me that has been really beautiful. And in some ways, like I said, I think I feel more connected in this moment 
than I have in a really, really long time. It's a hard thing to think about like that going away. I don't think it will. Like I think it's sort of a renewed connection, um, but it wasn't something I anticipated. Um, I wasn't sure what people were going to think about this book. I wasn't sure if people were going to be like, oh, this is, you know, this person hasn't lived here in 20 years. Like, what are they talking about? Like, they, they can't even say the things that they're saying. Like, they don't have any claim. Um, but I tried to really write a very specific story and I didn't try to make big, broad statements. Unlike that other book, I wasn't trying to like claim I understood anything more about Appalachia than just what it was like for me to grow up there. You know, you call your book another Appalachia. It's not the Appalachia. It's not the only Appalachia. It's, this is another Appalachian story. And in, you go to this writing conference in Appalachia where you, in this essay, where you're working through a lot of these ideas of identity. And you write, is the definition of Appalachia so narrow that it excludes even these writers, their progressive politics, placing them outside the bounds of belonging? If they struggle to feel represented by the term, then perhaps my insider-outsider battle isn't generational, it's philosophical. And, you know, that's something we think about at Reckon a lot. It's just like, if we put this kind of cookie-cutter mentality on Appalachian or Southern and that the identity can only look like, you know, what J.D. Vance is describing, or it can only look like the Beverly Hillbillies or, or things like that, then you're not making space for anybody. You're not making space for you. You're not making space for white progressives, black conservatives, non-binary Appalachians. And so, you know, I, I think that a lot of people will find themselves in this story of yours, even if it is, you know, your, your specific story, there's a lot of um, universality to it. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's been like one of the most beautiful things is how many people see themselves in that word another, right? And there are so many writers and thinkers who are writing another Appalachia, like, right? Bell Hooks writes another Appalachia. Crystal Wilkinson writes another Appalachia. Frank X. Walker writes another Appalachia. Dr. William Turner is writing another Appalachia. Like I can go through and I can list for you. Abraham Verghese, when he wrote In My Own Country, way back in the 80s, was writing another Appalachia. He was talking about East Tennessee and working in the mountains there, right? Um, people are asserting that voice in so many different ways. I think what is hard is that there is a seems to be a very deep investment by mainstream media in only allowing one narrative about Appalachia to dominate. And that is the Vance narrative. I think that has become a really convenient narrative. I think you can use that narrative and it allows you to villainize a region. It allows you to exploit it. It allows you to blame it. It allows you to do a lot of things to the people who live there. Um, but what it doesn't allow for is the level of nuance and complexity that actually exists. Um, and so I hope that every time people see that word another, it just kind of flips a switch in their head to be like, oh, yeah, like no place can be this flat. No place can be just one kind of person. It's not actually possible. And so if I keep seeing another, 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 does it push me further and further towards like, well, well who are those another's and how do I learn about them and how do I see their stories and how do I understand those places? deserving of complexity and deserving of generosity of spirit and empathy and all of the things that we should extend to people everywhere, but that I don't feel like get extended to people in Appalachia or by extension, I actually think to people in the South. Um, I think there is this really reductive narrative that gets applied that doesn't actually serve any of us. Um, it serves to keep us apart from each other and it serves to sow division, um, but it doesn't serve the people who live in any of these places. As we start to 
wrap up. It's been a another weird, dark year in Appalachia and in the South. You know, we're seeing waves of anti-LGBT bills across the country. Perhaps by the time this airs, or certainly within the next few weeks, it seems like Roe v. Wade is going to be struck down. And you do kind of get the sense from a lot of people, even a lot of people who have been living in these places and fighting their entire lives, that it's okay. Maybe it is okay if you are a queer Appalachian or if you are a woman growing up in Alabama and you are fearing for what it's like to live in a community like this that has such strict anti-abortion laws, that maybe you should leave and go somewhere else. But I think something else that I found a lot of inspiration in is that, you know, you've moved to Boston, you live in Boston now. And you've carried that kind of Appalachian kinship economy ethic with you. You've carried that work ethic with you. And you're also clear that like Boston, despite being one of the most progressive states in the country, (laughs) it's not a utopia. It's not a Mecca. There's a lot of shit there that people need to work through. And you have been at the forefront of a lot of those fights, particularly in terms of education. How do you carry that work ethic with you into other communities while maintaining that connection to Appalachia, but also by doing the work that you need to do to, to make places like Boston better. Yeah. I think that's such an important thing, right? I think that the most important thing for anyone is their survival. And so if it feels to somebody like you can't survive in the space where you're living, you have to go like, that's real. I feel that really deeply. And I also think you can fight from away. And I also think like no decision is forever. So you can fight from away and maybe there's a point at which you figure out how you re-engage and you go back or you always fight from away because that's the distance you can fight from. I think that one of the things that I really have spent a lot of time thinking about is that so much of the fight has been held by the people whose identities are under attack. And a big thing that I think about more and more is what does it look like for good people in Appalachia and good people in the South who know and love and care about queer people and trans people and people of color um, and like have them at their dinner tables and sit in their on their porches with each other. Like, what does it look like for folks who don't have those identities to get loud for people who do have those identities? I think that that's the variable that we haven't totally figured out yet. I was at Taylor Books for a reading in April and a woman in the audience was like, you know, like I have gay friends. I love them. They're wonderful. And I was like, you know, I really appreciate that you're saying that. And the West Virginia legislature just tried to pass so many bills that would basically make me not able to exist. And my question for you is like, did you call your legislator? Did you say to them that that wasn't okay with you? Um, Because if we're, If we're saying that we love people on an individual level, but we're not fighting for them on a structural level, I think we're not doing, that's not love. It's not real love. It's something else, but I don't think it's love. And so I think I sort of feel the same way about myself, which is like, if I have chosen that for my survival, I need to be away, what does it look like to make my Appalachian values and ways of living visible in the space where I am now? And what does it look like to fight for the people and places that I care about in the ways that I can and the place that I live? And that means in sometimes that I'm fighting against my school district with all of the union organizing and rabble rousing that I learned watching people fight in Appalachia. And sometimes it means I'm telling stories that push on narratives that are being allowed to dominate sort of the national understanding of the place where I grew up that are wrong. And I'm like, I got to write back against that. But I think it's for each of us, it's about figuring out 
first, how do I secure myself and feel safe and loved and held and wherever that place is, then how does that help me to think about, all right, well, what's my work now? And how do I, how do I do the work that matters to me in the, in a place where I feel that safety and security? And I think that's a thing that a lot of young people in Appalachia and in the South are going to have to figure out in this moment. And I hope that they give themselves the grace to sort of like make the decisions that are really hard for any of us to make. It is not easy to leave, but it does feel like in a lot of these places, survival is at stake for some people. And, and I, and I think that's a very real challenge and, and people need to be safe. That's the first thing you can't fight if you're not safe. I guess that's sort of how I think about it is to sort of strike that balance and figure out how do I secure myself? And then how do I fight from that place? Well, Nima, thank you very much. Everybody go find a copy of Another Appalachia. I'm certain that you will see yourself in this book. And thank you again, Nima. This was wonderful. Thank you for doing this with me. I really appreciate it. And that's our show, folks. Thank you to Nima Avasha for taking time to speak with us this week. Her book, Another Appalachia, is a brilliant and moving work, and I strongly encourage you to pick up a copy. If you're looking for an independent bookstore to support, Nima recommends Red Spotted Newt in Hazard, Kentucky. If you're enjoying our show, please give us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It'll help us get the word out and grow the show. And please, please, please share it with your friends. The Reckon Review is executive produced and hosted by me, John Hammontree. It's edited by Kanika Codrington and the great team over at Edit Audio. And until next time, be good to each other, be good to yourselves, and thanks for reckoning with me.